Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Ari Shah. Today, I was super excited to have with me in the studio, Daniel Glazer. Daniel leads the US expansion group and the London office at the Silicon Valley headquartered law firm, Wilson Sonsini. In today's episode, we talked about how in the last 10 years, there have only been 2 billion plus exits from M&A and only three listings in the US from the UK, even despite having 135 unicorns on the books. Uh, how we went from 2010, 100 million invested in the UK to 2021, 25 billion invested in tech. Uh, we talked about why and when you should think about launching in the US and incorporating in the US, uh, as well as the sort of things you need to think about when engaging legal counsel when you are opening up in the United States. This is a great episode. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Ari Shah. Today, I'm super excited to have with me in the studio, Daniel Glazer. Daniel leads the US expansion group and the London office at the Silicon Valley headquartered law firm, Wilson Sonsini. Uh, if you want to hear more about Wilson Sonsini and a bit about Daniel's background, please do check out our primer. But for the meantime, we're going to get straight into the podcast. Uh, Daniel, great to have you here with me today. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Excellent. We're going to dive straight in. So when you and I first met, I'm thinking back, it's probably about five or six years ago now. We had a very long conversation around the fact that in the UK, founders tend to kind of get an accountant first, whereas in the US, you tend to uh, have your first board of call as, as your law firm. Why is it so important to have good counsel in the US versus the UK? Well, I mean, it, it, it's important to have good counsel on both sides of the Atlantic, but it's a, it's a different system, and there, there are sort of different incentives built in. And let me let me explain. So let's say if, if you and I were in the, the UK and we have a business dispute, right, and you and I go to court, and let's say that, that you win, then under in the UK system, I pay most or all of your legal fees. And that creates a substantial disincentive for us to actually go to court and have a, a meaningful business dispute, right? Because nobody wants to go double or nothing with their legal fees. Right? Well, that, what that also does is create an environment where, let's say, you know, it's very common in the U.S. for, for uh, you know, for parties or for companies who are unhappy with each other to start sending nasty letters, right, legal letters to each other. You don't see that as much in, in the U.K., perhaps. Why? Because if I send you a nasty letter saying, I'm going to bring you to court and I'll see you in court, how credible is that, relatively speaking, given the relative lack of actual litigation in the UK, again, because of the disincentives with the fee shifting? So, you know, in that environment where, you know, there isn't as much of a threat of going to court, as much of a threat of maybe threatening to, to sue, you know, legal tends to be, let's say, a little bit more, more, more reactive then, because um, it, you don't necessarily have that specter hanging over your head relative to the United States. In the United States, if you and I have a business dispute and we go to court and you win, you still pay all your legal fees, mm -hmm. generally speaking, even though you won. Mm -hmm. And think about how that shifts the dynamic of it, right? So like if you and I have and if, if you and I are negotiating a contract, right? And let's say that it's um, we just pull it off the internet because why not? It's easier that way. And then six months later, you and I have a falling out. Well, one of the things that I can do is go to my counsel and say, I want you to find any breach of contract claim I can find in that contract, which would be pretty easy given the ambiguity. We pulled it off the Internet. Mm. And now maybe I'll threaten a claim against you. Now think about what your choices are. Okay? You can go to court and beat me, but now you're out 
hundred thousand in fees or whatever it might or be. Or maybe a lot more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, or you decide to settle on my terms because you don't want to pay that that amount. You're between the proverbial rock and a hard place, right? So how do you avoid that? See, in the U.S., that that potential for exposure leads to a, a significant, a substantial incentive to take problem avoidance mm. legal advice. In other words, the way that you sort of work with outside counsel in the U.S., is, especially as a startup, is that they are, whether explicitly or implicitly, answering one question. How does the company achieve its business goals while managing risk? Mm. If you just focus on advising on purely business without understanding the legal implications, then you could end up in a, in a position where you have that exposure between that rock and a hard place. But if you're just flagging risk in the United States, I mean, everything's a risk, yeah. right? So you, you always have to view it through the lens of how do you run a successful business while appropriately managing risk? And what it leads to is an environment where the, the lawyers tend to be very business-minded, especially the ones who work with startups, because... You know, the, the company is trying to grow fast, break things, right? But if there's different ways to break things in, in a way that doesn't necessarily lead to legal risk, maybe that's the way to do it. But if you're a business person, you're much more attuned to the fact that you probably want to take advice from counsel as you're scaling the business so as to not unnecessarily find yourself slowed down by, 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 by those exposure risks. I, I mean, I think it's super interesting. And there's a couple of kind of examples that, that I would give. I mean, I've been through the process here in the UK and it is, I mean, frustratingly slow, right? And one of the, one of the negative consequences of the system as you described it is because not much stuff gets to court, A, it's very easy for, for people to vacillate and, and essentially, you know, be bad actors and not not kind of uh, in good faith try and negotiate settlement so that drags things out secondly the court system is in a bit of disarray i would say in the uk certainly post covid it seems that way um because you don't have that urgency uh to your point of whether you're gonna have to settle costs or not um it's it's much easier to kind of just kick the can down the road and and and, and see what happens which is why i think disputes here in the uk probably take longer to resolve than they they potentially do in the us and the other thing that came out of what you were saying uh, certainly for me as i was listening is like if i think about kind of what cfos do uh in 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 general like a lot of that is risk mitigation they often are one of the first kind of commercial financial business minded people in the business in the uk and it feels like there's actually a huge crossover there right so so essentially what a cfo is doing in the business seems to be what a lawyer is doing at very early stage uh, in a u.s firm uh, and i mean I, I i don't think there's anything wrong with either of those sort of scenarios as it were um, but it's why it's so essential that actually both work together pretty closely as well, right? No, absolutely. But it is, it, it is let's say, a poten potentially unusual dynamic for a UK or European company going to the US. And, and it's one of the friction points that mm. we often see is that in the, in, in, in the States, the companies that are native to the US understand these dynamics, right? They understand, for, for, for example, that if you're, you're a startup, as you build pretty quickly in your life cycle, you end up having basically five advisors around you. Mm. You have a law firm, you have a tax firm, you have a bank, you have a business insurance provider, and you have a payroll and benefits provider. Mm. And those are you know, the advisors who deal with all the administrative and logistical complexity of the United States, right? It's 50 states. Each, each state has its own legal system, its own set of laws. Yep. Each state has its own tax system. As, as an accountant in the US once told me, there are 13,000 
different taxing geographies Jeez. in the United States. When you combine state and city, local, federal, you end up with 13,000. But the funny thing is, is that if you tell an American company that, they'll shrug and say, yeah, okay, that's what my accountant does, right? And that sort of reliance on, uh, you know, on delegating to, to that outside team who's working hand in hand with, with you to help scale the business, that's, that's you know, culturally normal, yeah. right, for, for, for U.S. businesses. That's not necessarily the way that it is as typical in the U.K. I think the U.K. is probably, UK is probably a little bit more DIY. I mean, as an American coming into the U.K., I find the U.K. to be very business-friendly. Uh, you know, it, it, is, it is a little bit easier here than it is with, with the U.S. You don't have that kind of 50-state overlay. Um, but then when you go across to, to the U.S., you know, it becomes a little bit uncomfortable. Like, well, well hold on. <laughs> I didn't realize that I have to rely on all these, on all these, this sort of outside help. And, and, and I, I can certainly tell from working with many companies who do this is it feels a little bit awkward that that's not how they're used to running a business. And it does become a bit of a competitive advantage for American companies in terms of how quickly and aggressively they can move be, because they're used to working in that in, in that environment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's super interesting. I, I think the other thing I would say is in, in the UK, there's probably like this, uh, and, and it's, I mean, just thinking about it uh, completely sort of off the cuff, if you think about sort of funding rounds in the US, a lot of that is because you have these additional costs you're going to have to lay out, right? You can't rely on doing zero on your own and kind of figuring out, as you say, pulling pulling a contract off the internet. So you need to be set up for success in, in managing those back office risks. Whereas in the UK, you can get away with it, which means when you go to the US, oh, sugar, I've, all of a sudden I've got like, I don't know, whatever, an extra 30 yeah, grand a month yeah. to pay. Like, where's that going to come from, right? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's a great observation. I mean, the, the, we often get the question, like, why are the rounds so large in, in, in the United States? Um, and, it, and it's a couple things, right? It's number one, the, the cost of scaling the business on average in the US is higher. And it's, I mean, it's everything, right? The salaries are higher, the marketing costs are higher. I mean, it's just it, it's just more expensive in the United States. But the upside is higher too, yeah, yeah. right? And and the upside that, that the VCs are looking for in the US is substantial. So you know, there is a willingness in the US on average to provide those large rounds to companies for, for kind of two reasons. The first, as you said, because it costs maybe a little bit more to run a successful US business, but also, the desire to give the company enough money to really drop the hammer and win the market. Because yeah. if then you win the market, then, then, then the exit valuation is that much higher and everybody wins. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're gonna talk about that a little bit further on, uh, both in terms of kind of the VC funding as well as the exit kind of dynamics. But um, from your perspective, what are the trigger points for a UK firm looking to expand into the US? And when should they consider getting the right structure in place yeah. And whether that should be, you know, a Topco flip to the U.S., which, you know, we've talked about previously uh, uh, between ourselves as well, a subsidiary or, or something else altogether. I mean, what, what, what are the triggers and then what is most appropriate at what time? Sure. So the bright red line of when you need to set up a proper structure in the U.S. typically is when you're hiring your first U.S. Em employees. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do um, with respect to the U.S. as a U.K. company that you don't need any particular structure for. For example, selling in remotely to U.S. companies, unless you're selling into certain, unless you're selling into certain uh, U.S. government entities or the military, you generally can sell into the U.S. straight through your U.K. company directly. Um, Hiring contractors in the U.S. You don't need an entity to hire contractors in the U.S. Um, hiring employees through an employer of record service. You don't need to create a structure to do that, right? Um, 
going to meetings, uh, generally ra ra raising money, uh, attending conferences, negotiating contracts, all that stuff you can go to the U.S. You don't necessarily need a need a visa for, and you don't you don't need a company. But the bright red line of when you would want to create the company is when when you're hiring your own em employees. In other yeah. words, not through an employer of record, not through a contractor arrangement, but your own proper employees um, because basically for three reasons tax liability Im 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 employment law in other words you don't want to create a taxable presence of your uk company in the us mm -hmm. you don't want to end up with a direct line of liability to the deep pockets of the uk company from the us and you don't want the ambiguity of uk employment rules and us employment rules with a uk employer and a us employee in short right um, but it's going to be a subsidiary right yeah. as, as i often say our our advice on this is is a is a tweetable piece of advice which is that the, the, the um the decision to create a U.S. subsidiary mm -hmm. is operational and commercial driven. The decision to create a U.S. parent company is solely investor driven. Yeah. Right. In other words, in other words, to the extent that you need a U.S. company, pretty much everything that you want to do in the U.S. you can do through a U.S. sub. Right. Typically, by the way, wholly owned Delaware corporation yeah. um, owned by the uh, by the U.K. company, with the exception of and this is the, the Delaware flip point that you alluded to. If you are raising typically from early stage U.S. investors, most often seed, sometimes A, almost never B anymore. Mm -hmm. um, if you're raising from certain early stage U.S. investors, uh, some of those U.S. investors will not pull the trigger and invest in the company unless it agrees to become a Delaware parent company, yeah. right? And that's that's the so-called Delaware flip. In other words, a share-for-share -share exchange between the UK Limited and a new Delaware corporation that results in a Delaware parent company with a wholly owned UK subsidiary. By the way, why Delaware? The headline, Delaware reduces friction. Um, you have to incorporate your, you incorporate a company in one of the 50 states in the U.S. There's no mm -hmm. such thing as a national, national company, yeah. right? We, we, all, we all use it with shorthand, U.S. company, and that's fine. But technically, it's a company that's incorporated in one of the 50 states. And again, Delaware reduces friction. Long ago, it established itself as the go-to state for incorporation yeah. in, the, in the U.S. I mean, <clears throat> the thing that strikes me, because you, know, you said it's typically kind of that early stage, if you're seeking early stage investment, that's where a, a top close flip might be required but essentially there is no real reason for that other than simplicity for the investor because to your point if they don't require it at a or or certainly at b then it can't be that there is something that is stopping an investor from investing in a uk company it's just friction right or it's just sorry simplicity on their side uh, uh ease of, of reference there that you know they're able to kind of navigate that sort of situation yeah. much easier than than um you know if, if it's a if it's a us company so it, it doesn't seem like there is an actual any any purpose to doing a us hopco flip other than to satisfy investors right so let's um Let's break that down a, a little sure. bit, right? So first of all, I, I would say what we're seeing, especially post, uh, po post COVID, mm -hmm. is if you're looking to raise a US-led seed round, and when I say US-led, I mean investors who are based in the States who do not have a London office, yep. okay? So I, what we're seeing is usually about 75 to 80% chance that that, that that VC at seed would require a flip in order to pull the trigger. Mm. Um, by the time you get to series A, it's down to about 20 to 25%. I mean, it, and, that, and that's what's dropped materially, I think, over the course of the, the pandemic. And, and actually, as, as more and more investors not only got used to investing remotely, but got comfortable with UK companies, is that at series A, I would say pre-pandemic, I would have put that number at about 60 to 70% oh, wow. chance. Okay, as high as that. And it's, and it's down to about 20 to 25% okay. now, yeah. And and we haven't seen a Series B or later 
UK limited company have to flip to take in money um, in a long time, yeah. right? So I mean, I, I don't, yeah. I'd put that at virtually zero. But at the early stage, you know, to, to go to your point, look, to, to some extent, it's it's simply friction. It's it's simply that that the companies are, from the U.S. investor standpoint, frankly, too fungible mm-hmm. at that stage mm-hmm. to to you know go out and find UK counsel and you know understand what are my rights as an investor in a you know in a UK company because again Delaware reduces friction in the respect that US VCs know exactly what their rights and obligations are under Delaware law mm-hmm. and anytime they invest outside of Delaware they have to go and try to figure it out and the earlier you are and and the more you know fungible you are the less interested the US VC is going to be to do that 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 is one consideration however there are a few other considerations for example there are certainly some US funds um, in that in their fund documents prohibit the fund from investing into companies yeah. based outside of the United States. Sure, sure. And we always tell U- UK European companies we work with that's not negotiable, right? I mean if the VC has that restriction contractually in their documents, then you as the company need to decide because they'll you only have been that. able to raise from the LPs based on having that restriction. Right. In that now, app. in fairness, that is not that common in the in in the United States, but it, there are still certain certain funds that have that. Also, you know, in, in, in fairness, there is some benefit, and I don't want to oversell this. I want to preface this, right? I don't want to oversell this. However, there is some moderate benefit when you are hiring U.S. employees to provide the options to those employees mm. out of a Delaware parent company as opposed to a U- U.K. limited. In other words, there's, there's a, it's a little bit more tax beneficial yeah. to the employee. On the other hand, I mean, I, I can't tell you the, the number of U.K. limited companies that we work with who – very easily go out and hire in the U.S. and provide options to U.S. employees to the extent that this becomes an issue, you just simply gross them up a little bit and provide them a little bit more in, in, in options. But I'll, t- I'll tell you the bottom line takeaway that we always tell, tell, tell companies on the, on the Delaware flip, which is the following. At the end of the day, don't worry about it, okay? <laughs> Here's what I mean by that, right? Wait until you go out and start talking to U.S. investors, and if U.S. investors who you're interested in, you are interested in, start saying to you, you seem like a pretty interesting company, but I'm, not, I'm a little bit hesitant to invest in a U.K. limited company, then you say back to them, you say, great. If that's the last gating item for you, then we can talk about that, about flipping into Delaware, and we could build it into the term sheet. Yeah. Right, because that protects both sides. If yeah, you build so you, it only into the do the, you only do the flip if the investment comes through, rather than if you yeah. know that the money is yeah. going to come to yeah. fund the flip, and that protects both sides, protects the VC, and that they never have to deal with the limited because the flip completes first, then the financing docs come in, and the money comes into the ink, the the corporation. Mm-hmm. But it also protects the company is that they don't commit to spending the money because it can be expensive, especially if you have SEIS or EIS mm. and you need to save that SEIS, EIS treatment for earlier stage investors, which, by the way, you can do. Mm-hmm. You can save it. Mm-hmm. But it's a complicated transaction. Mm-hmm. You don't commit to that unless you know that there's going to be an investment there waiting for you. Yeah. No, look, I mean, that makes a huge amount of sense. I think you and I discussed like why Combinator, as an example, will only invest in in companies with a U.S. top code because it's 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 just easier right like as in as in it, it, anyone that doesn't have a u.s top code for them just becomes like well we, we just have no clue what we're going to do with this one so we'll just leave it to the side right? well well i think it goes back to what i said before i mean that the, the earlier stage the companies are the kind of the more the, fungible, the, the more fungible yeah. right and, and it's hard to say when it's you know two founders you know the, the proverbial two founders a dog at a garage right um that they're so your, your google roots are showing right yeah. you're right that, that, that they're so certain that they're going to be 
frankly worth it to go mm-hmm. out and find Dutch counsel, French counsel, Got German counsel, right, right, to, to deal with all of that as opposed to saying, listen, you know, it, it's going to be Delaware at this stage. Yeah, no, it may, I mean, it does make sense. But I, I guess, you know, from my perspective, I, I guess my cautionary word to, to uh, UK founders out there is, uh, and, and sort of echoing what you said about getting it written into the term sheet is, you know, it is a non-trivial exercise right. to set up in the US. And to your point, it isn't setting up in the US, it's setting up in a state. And then every state that you create a nexus in, there are additional filing requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So don't treat it as a, you know, as a simple kind of thing that, okay, yeah, we want to do some business in the US, we're just going to go and set up there. Uh, it, it is quite complex, complicated. There are costs associated, there's costs associated with setting up, and then there's ongoing kind of filing requirements at the federal, the state, the local level, uh, and, and on and on it goes, right? So, um, so, so in fact, you know, just talking about not quite that, but what are some of the primary challenges you see uh, startups facing when they, when they expand across the UK and Europe into the US? And what are the strategies that you think they can use to mitigate those yeah. risks? So, you know, I... I think one of the most common questions that we get is like, you know, what what do UK startups get wrong go, going to the U.S.? And my 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 typical response on that is timing, and it it's that it's the companies that go too quickly, and the companies that don't go quickly enough. And I'll break that down and explain what what I mean. There are some companies that that go to the U.S. because they see the U.S. They say they see all the venture financing there. It, it seems like the streets are paved with VC gold, right? Um, Clearly, there massive market for for consumption of technology and and, and buying tech you know tech tech services and products, and how difficult could it be? I mean, we all speak some variation of English, right? And the U.S. and I'll, I'll tell you as as now a resident of of the U.K. I it I it's amazing to me how close the U.S. often feels in mm-hmm. terms of how it's reported in 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 the media. Um, you know, just the, the, the way that, that the entertainment industry in the U.S. is, yeah. so, is so, so present here. It's very easy to feel that, that, that the U.S. is pretty much the same. Yeah, it's our neighbor. It's, it's our neighbor. The, yeah. Right. Um, but from a business, but from actually running a business there, it is just as as different as if you decided to go uh, expand into Germany. Mm-hmm. Right. Or expand it into China. Right. It, the, the language, the, the seeming seeming lack of language barrier, uh, you know, I, I think papers over a little bit and, and it obscures some of the, the big differences. And what that means is, is that just because you've got product market fit in the UK doesn't mean you've got product market fit in the United States. Mm. And that's a common mistake. So so we see companies sometimes say we're going to go to the US because we're a successful tech company in the UK. And if we did it in the UK, the US is that much bigger. We just got to get over there. We got to plant the flag and we will go figure it out. Maybe you will go figure it out, but there is no reason necessarily to think that you've got product market fit or can eventually achieve product market fit there unless you are being pulled into the US by customer traction and user growth, right? Unless or sold remotely, that some sort of proof point going in. Otherwise, you're just taking a massive risk. I bet. Yeah. Right with a with with a with a with a lot of money because as I always say the U.S. is an ROI play, mm-hmm. right? It is more expensive to run a business there on average, but the upside is that much higher, and which, which means that you do it if you if you're confident that you can get ROI, mm-hmm. and the more that you're being pulled in by those kind of proof points, the more likely you are to get ROI. But that that that's what I mean in sort of the, the first part of going too quickly is not proving out sufficiently. 
that it's the right market for you before you spend the money to commit. It's sort of assuming you've got a playbook here, it'll work over there, yeah. which is going to launch rather you, you almost have to have a separate playbook. Right? That's right. That's yeah. right. So that's, that's the first part of, of the, I think the, the timing friction. The second part is, is going, not going quickly enough. Mm. And, and this one took us a few years to really recognize properly. And that is that we see lots of companies get a foothold in the United States, right? That, that they do get initial traction there, they hire you know, their initial employees there, but then it's really hard to scale up massively in the United States, mm. right? For, for a couple of reasons. Number one, when American competitors start to realize that they've got a new competitor in, in, their, in their midst, they can, they'll become aggressive, right? They'll, mm. they'll start ramping up their own spending, they'll start um, you know, going out and raising more, more, more money, and they, they already have the relationships and, and right i mean like they might um they, that's when you see them start to leverage the legal system mm -hmm. a little bit because remember claims in the us have settlement value not because they're, they're there's a, it's any necessarily a search for justice so much as that they're used as a business tool mm -hmm. often and that's not something that that uk companies are used to so i think the the, the one part of that is that it is is the the aggressiveness of american companies you know if you if you really start to materially compete but the other part of this that becomes difficult is sort of running a U.S. business through a U.K. lens, right? That there's there's just certain ways that you operate a business here that are perfectly normal for the U.K. but that don't really work well in the U.S. For example, your U.S. salespeople probably will become the most the highest paid people yeah. in the entire org organization. Yeah. And if you're on the ground in the U.S., that seems to make sense. If your if your CEO, your CFO are, are sitting here in in the U.K. And they're seeing, you know, the, the, these the highest paid people in the organization be these American salespeople. Like that just seems a little bit off, and and that's that's a friction point that we often see is that the the UK the, sorry the US based team is constantly going back to the US team you, you, the UK headquarter team and saying we need this we need this we need this, and the UK team is looking at this saying well this isn't the way that we're used to running a business yeah right and and it's it's led us to believe that if the company long term really wants to try to become the market leader or the market winner in the United States, then eventually you really do need to put someone with senior management authority, maybe CEO authority, on the ground in the US. Now, I want to be very nuanced about that because I, I hear a lot of commentary about when you expand to the US, do you have to move the CEO? And and the proper answer, in my opinion, is, is a little nuanced, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, it's the dreaded, it depends. Right? Yeah. Um, but, but I can tell you exactly. But everything does depend always. But right? I can tell you so, exactly what it depends on. Right. Right. Is that in our experience, if the company believes that, that the success or failure of the enterprise as a whole is tied to becoming a market winner, a market leader in so the United States. The presence in the U.S. Then yeah. you really need to have a senior decision maker who can, who can you know, turn, turn the, uh, the aircraft carrier of, of the whole enterprise, as it were, from the U.S., you need to have that person, that team on the ground in the U.S. Because at that point, when you're saying we need to become a market leader in the United States, you are saying we need to win an away match. And if you're going to win an away match and keep all your – if you're going to try to win an away match with all your best players at home, that's usually a bridge too far. You're going to struggle, to say the least. Yeah, I, I think that's super, super interesting. I think it's something that a lot of founders – maybe don't think about maybe struggle with i mean often you know they they are open to it but 
I guess one of the, you know, I've, I've, having spoken to a couple of founders about this sort of thing in the past, you know, you've got to think about, is your partner willing to move with you? Do you have kids at school? You know, all of these sort of considerations come into play. So they are not to be done lightly. And therefore you have to be very, very sure about what you're doing, why you're doing it and what the implications are moving down the track. And again, it comes back to the whole risk, risk mitigation kind of question uh, before kind of really launching yourself in that direction. I, I wanted to wrap up uh, talking about some of the nuances again between the UK, UK and the US in terms of venture itself, right? So what are the, the main sort of differences you see in approach uh, from VCs in the US versus the UK? And then the other kind of uh, adjacent point, we touched on this a little bit is, um, what is the exit environment like here in the UK and, and why more broadly in, in Europe as well, right? Because, uh, you know, there, there have been about 135 unicorns in the UK, but very, very few exits, uh, certainly, you know, billion dollar plus uh, exits um, uh, so far. So where do you see that? How do you see that landscape? What is the role that yeah. the, 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 the New York Stock Exchange and, and, and other US exchanges, but, you know, US investors, how does that all work? Because at the moment, what we're seeing essentially is great businesses being built, but very, very sort of high barriers to to, to exit uh, for UK European com uh, companies. So, should we start maybe with with on the venture side? Yeah, right? let's talk about some of the some, yeah. some of the differences yeah. that, that that we see. So, I'll, I'll maybe sort of kick off with with an anecdote, right? Um, it was about three or four years. It must have been four four years ago. Um, I was on a, uh, a trade trade mission with a group of U UK companies called uh, Brits, by the, Brits by the Bay, right? Um, and we we met with a uh, a, a well known Bay Area VC, okay? And the VC addressed the group, and he and he said something like the following: He said, "I want to explain to you Silicon Valley Bay Area venture economics." And he said, he said, our fund, like pretty much every fund in the Bay Area, is, is looking for companies that can return the fund or more, that have the ability to return the fund or more. Not will return the fund or more. We can't promise that. We, we, we know that we can't get the company to, to, mm. to promise that there's no guarantee. But if there's no pathway to return the fund or more, it's not interesting. Then that's it, right. Yeah. The opportunity cost to deploy capital in that company is too great. Because even if there's a certainty of a smaller exit, we're foregoing the possibility of the bigger exit, right? And and he said, what we want to see is is that if if with with our money and our expertise and our network combined with a big total addressable market and your team and a and a good business plan, that there's a possibility that, that we can make that magic happen and 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 return the funder more. And he said, think about the economics behind that and the math behind that. He said, we we take ten percent. When we invest, typically, and we are at that point, at that time, a three hundred million dollar fund. Mm. He said that means that we need to see a pathway to a three, three billion dollar exit, or it's and that's assuming no dilution between now right. and so on. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and the and the room was like, wow, <laughs> you know, and and I and look, I think capital in the UK has diversified in terms of the style of capital. Um, significantly in the past few years. I think, you know, you've got the American funds in London, you've got the American style funds in, in London. But, you know, I, I think it is far more common in the United States to find VCs who are willing to place the big bet knowing that they could have the big loss mm -hmm. 
for the possibility of the big of upside. The big upside. Yeah. Whereas I, I don't think that that approach is as common. It exists here. I want to be very clear. It does exist in the UK, but it's not as common yeah. as it is in, in the United States. I mean, if you were to listen to almost all of our guests, they would say that that is exactly what their you know what their um, uh, desire is. But I think there are. I, I think I think there's also this big difference between the UK and the US in terms of kind of the investor. Um, persona right so a lot of the investors in the us are ex operators or founders themselves they've they've been through that track uh, and then they're recycling their own capital plus others whereas here in the uk europe there's often much more kind of that money manager traditional private equity style kind of approach right yeah there have been surveys on that actually um a few years ago diversity vc mm. ran a ran a study on that and i think what they found um, was that in the U.S. of the surveyed uh, investors, something like 65% or so wow. were former startup operators, had worked at startups, had founded startups. And with the investors surveyed in the U.K., I think it was 8%. Now, I think that that's changed, um, I mean, a bit, right? But, but it's still directionally true, mm -hmm. which, which is on average U.S. investor, U.S. VC investors, especially the early stage U.S. VC investors, tend to be, you know, start uh, startup folks, right? Who have become finance folks, right? Um, and and it's not as common in the UK yet, in part because and maybe this is a nice segue, in part because you haven't seen nearly the as, large exits. as the large exits, yeah. right? Because that's how those startup um, founders, startup employees, become be, become investors, like and because those are the stories over the generations of Silicon Valley and New York and, and the other major ecosystems in the US is that these the, the startup employees, um, and, you know got in relatively early, had a big exit, and then they become these prolific angel investors or prolific v v VCs. There haven't been that many stories like that yet in mm. the UK and Europe. There are definitely some, but there aren't that many yet. And to, to get to that point, we need to start seeing exits at scale. And we definitely have not seen exits at scale yet in the UK and Europe. Yeah, and from, from your perspective, how does that dynamic change? How, how do we actually ensure that we are seeing those eggs because i mean one of the one of the conversations i have with a number of vcs all the time is in part it isn't actually a problem with the startups it's a problem with the institutional and uh public sort of markets the sort of investors you have in the public markets they're kind of thinking around tech in fact i mentioned this i think on a recent podcast i, I had a bit of a to and fro with i think it was the even evening standards tech reporter uh, they had a list of top 50 tech um, founders or something in, in the UK. I can't remember exactly what it was. But within that, there were businesses that I would not consider technology. You know, there were things like, you yeah. know, Gymshark, which is, okay, yes, technology enabled in terms of how they sell, but it's a brand. So there, there seems to be this issue around, you know, whether or not UK kind of uh, uh, institutional investors and those in the public markets actually quote unquote, get tech and are willing to pay for growth rather than, you know, traditionally what what they have been paying paying for, which is value, you know, bank stocks, maybe some yeah. some oil and gas, etc. So look, I mean, the, the IPO market on both sides, the Atlantic at this point is yeah. is a little bit, a sure. little, little bit tricky. But I think we need to we need to just keep in mind is that the the IPO outcome for any given venture backed tech company is not that common, mm. even in great times. Right? I mean, it's it's not necessarily the most likely outcome. I think the the ratio of M and A outcomes to IPO outcomes is something like five to six to one or something like that. I mean, yeah. in terms of exit outcomes, the way to, the way we often think about it is that there's there's sort of three three true outcomes right for a, for a venture backed tech company um, bankruptcy. So let's not talk too much about that one. You know, M and A sale, mm -hmm. whatever that that looks like, and and IPO. And the reality of it is is that um, 
you know, of those two successful outcomes, the M&A one is far more, more prevalent. Yeah. And, and we have not seen that many large M&A sales yet in, in the UK. I mean, so, you know, we, we did some, some research on, on this, and, and I'm pretty confident that, that this is the case, that in the last 10 years, there have only been, if, if for, proper, for tech companies, putting aside biotech, pharma, but like proper venture-backed tech, yeah. um, there have only been two billion plus sales of venture-backed UK tech companies in, in the past 10 years. Wow. And we've got 135 or whatever the number is, yeah. unicorns, right? And then on top of that, um, you know, in terms of, let, let's say, U.S. listings, I think we, we, we talk to a lot of companies that, that think, you know, that, that say that, that a long-term goal is to list in the States. Yeah. But if you put aside SPACs, right, which, and I, and I think that that market is in a different place than it was a few years ago, um, and if you put aside biotech and pharma, again, there's a different barrier to entry, mm. a different bar to list on the NASDAQ as a biotech or pharma than there is for sort of classic venture-backed tech. In the last 10 years, there have only been three UK venture-backed tech companies listed in the United States, mm. right? And, and, and I think that that's pretty interesting because the, the two most common exit outcomes that I hear from companies are, we want to sell you know, for a billion dollars plus, or we want to go list in the, the U.S. Yeah. And in the last 10 years, that comprises five exits. So I think one, one what we've been saying increasingly is that the opportunity is there, right? So my, my favorite st statistic about London Tech, in 2010, there was $100 million total invested into London Tech companies, the year of the Tech City launch, right? 100, 100 million. million total. That. Right. That seems in 2010 ludicrous, but okay. right, yeah. <laughs> and then at the high water mark in 2021, there was 25 billion. Yeah, and that wow. is, ap that scale is absolutely praiseworthy. The London became and is now the the number three and sometimes tied for number two mm. startup ecosystem globally. Silicon Valley number one, and and New York sometimes tied at number two, number three, right? Um, but ultimately, the story hasn't been fully written yet. In other words, we, we've gotten almost to the end of the flywheel effect or, or really, got it, really got it going, but we haven't reached that last point, which is how do you start getting exits at scale and turning that $25 billion in investment in 2021 into- Hundreds it, of billions. Exactly, yeah, yeah. In, into 5X, 10X, mm. you know, a few years down the road. And, and that, that has to come, right? I mean, to create a sustainable ecosystem. That has to come. That's what leads the LPs mm. to invest again in the next generation of funds. It's what, what, what leads, as we talked about before, the, the, the founders, uh, the entrepreneurs to become either repeat founders or to become investors. The, the, the earlier stage em employees themselves go have, have the money and the experience to go start their own companies. This is how generation after generation of that so-called flywheel effect, how the valley became the valley. Mm -hmm. And all of that is here, is here in London. The recipe is here, but we haven't yet hit the exit point at scale where that can really start flowing. I think that's a really positive note to kind of wrap up the podcast. And, and I think what I would add to that is uh, and you sort of alluded to that. The, rea the reality is that actually in terms of an ecosystem, the UK is probably 20, 30 years behind uh, where the value essentially started. If you think about the value from the kind of, you know, late 50s, early 60s, uh, you know, the trader estate, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's had a lot more time to incubate and grow and have those exits come over time. Whereas the UK, you know, I was talking to someone who who sort of said, 
from their perspective, really only since the early 2000s has the UK sort of tech scene started started growing. And, and you know, to your point, 100 million in 2010 shows you how actually how small uh, it was at that time. Daniel, I, I've got to say it's been absolutely wonderful having you here in the studio with me today. Thank you so much for joining me. For our listeners, where's the best place for them to find you online? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? Where where can they find you? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. And you can always find me on, on, on the website, wsgr.com. Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you.